Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcast app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we have the second episode of The Great Energy Transition, a new series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Cummins. In this episode, we're looking ahead to the future and asking what needs to happen between 2030 and 2050 to reach net zero. To explore the drastic technological innovation and societal change that will be needed to make net zero emissions by 2050 a reality, we're joined by Shrikanth, president of the engine business at Cummins. To find out more about Cummins, please visit Cummins.com. Our host for the series is physicist and broadcaster Helen Chersky. Here's Helen with more. Hello and welcome to The Great Energy Transition, a new series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Cummings. This series is all about bringing together leading voices to discuss the big questions around the environment and energy and the journey to net zero. I'm Helen Chersky, I'm your host, and this is the middle one in the series of three. So our first was about what's happening between now and 2030 to achieve net zero. The final one is about the role of corporations in the energy transition. And this one, the middle one, is about the medium term. What needs to happen between 2030 and 2050 to achieve net zero? And joining us today is Srikanth, who is the vice president at Cummings and president of their engine business. And we'll be hearing lots from him about the Cummings view of what will happen between 2030 and 2050. And of course, his broader views on how to ensure a successful energy transition. And we've got lots to discuss. There's all these big questions, you know, how do we think about these big challenges? Which technologies are going to be critical for this transition? What infrastructure is going to be needed and how do we future proof it? And what other groundwork needs to be laid so that we can really make this transition effective? you know, the groundwork for stuff that may not start happening until a decade or so from now. So it is time to introduce our guest for today in a little bit more detail. Shrikanth is a vice president at Cummings and also, as I said, president of their engine business, which is the largest of Cummings business segments. And his focus is on positioning Cummings as the leading powertrain supplier across the full range of options. So they have currently diesel and natural gas and then hybrid and electric powertrains. Um, And in 2021, Srikanth and his team were responsible for an output of nearly 1.5 million engines globally. So this is no small change we're talking about here. And so he's got a very broad view of this business. So Srikanth, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, Helen. Thank you for that nice introduction as well. Yeah, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Well, let's say so we'll get stuck straight in with some some big thoughts here, I think. Which so first of all, you know, the world is is changing really quickly. You know, we can see already the changes from year to year are really coming fast. So thinking ahead to 2030, you know, it seems a lot might already have changed by then. So how does a business like Cummings approach the planning? What feeds into it in a world that's changing so quickly? How do you plan for what's going to happen between 2030 and 2050? Can I just take a step back just to tell a little bit about uh, both me and the company as well? I've been in the company for well over 30 years and I've been around the world. I grew up in India, came to the United States, then lived in Mexico, lived in England and came back over here to the United States. 
And this company has been there for about 103 years. So there are parallels from what has happened in the last 30 years is what the next 30 years in some ways are likely to be, even though there might be accelerated stuff that might happen. I think in the last 30 years, I personally have seen in commercial mobility and transportation enormous amounts of improvement that we've had. So for example, today, it, 67 trucks today produce the same emissions as one truck that produced in 1988, which means that we have made huge, huge improvement in emissions and efficiency and things like that, which then makes me think that what we are doing now in 2022 was what we set the stage in 2013, if you will, which means for what needs to happen, particularly because reliability, durability, and other things are important in the commercial mobility and transportation space, we're pretty much getting started on what work will get to go down the assembly line by 2030 or so. So almost already, if you have not started doing some work today, 2030 will, will pretty soon be here. So which means for me to see what needs to happen between 2030 and 2050 is long-range scenario planning is one thing that we do quite a bit in terms of what kind of adoption rates for zero emissions vehicles might be, whether it will be a slow adoption, it will be a fast adoption, what kind of regulatory framework that we would have from people in Belgium, some people in California, people in Beijing, people in New Delhi, as well as in uh, EPA, if you will, in the United States. And the last one would be what kinds of government incentives and others that are going to be there in the political framework. So it is public, private, as well as regulatory framework, which is what will help us come together to understand what can happen between 2030 and 40, which then allows our technology planning and financial planning as well. Now, I sort of have to ask this question because I gave your one of your job titles is president of the engine division. And yet many people see the road to net zero as basically that's the getting rid of the engines. So um, how does an engine business approach the energy transition? Are there going to be any engines in, in 2030 or 2040? Yeah, and I think all of us have come and given some major pronouncements, right? The United States has said 2050. China is set 2060, India is set 2070. These are all terminologies that are there that people and countries would want to get to net zero by some particular time. What I don't know, I think I know for sure, is it's not a light switch event, which means things are not going to happen overnight. I just recently visited India and I came back from there. Those folks, in terms of development, what it requires that needs to happen over there, would require fertilizer, would require steel, would require cement, and would require plastics in terms of what they need to do as development happens. And for all that, in many ways, what we do is central to it. What I do know is there is going to be a finite time period where I'll be gone and this diesel engines may not be there. But in the meantime, I think we need to start today as opposed to waiting for this perfect solution, right? This is what I call as continuous improvement beats postponed perfection. For me, if we don't start today and we make incremental improvements year on year, which is what I'm targeted to do, which is what we are going to do in terms of the solutions that we provide, I think it is far better to do that than waiting for some perfect nirvana that is going to happen in 2035 or 2045 and hoping the world will be cured of all its evils and things will get really, really better. Well, we'll come to some of those details in technology in a little bit, but I was also, um, just in thinking of these, these kind of big strategic thoughts, I was interested in what you think the biggest influences are in this transition to net zero for, for a company like Cummins, because obviously, you know, there's always economics, particularly at the moment, you know, money is tight in many places. People don't have spare money to buy new technology necessarily. There's a lot of public pressure. There's probably customer pressure. There's probably the 
communities where your production facilities are, who, you know, people are starting to realise how important talking to those communities is, you know, and there's government policy. So there's all these pressures on a big company like Cummings. Where, where are the real drivers coming from for you to shift your business to a net zero situation? Yeah, thank you. I think in the larger scheme, like you said, it is the community, it is the production facilities that we do, and it is what do we do to take care of the communities that we are in, and how are we going to provide employment and growth is one aspect of it. The larger piece, though, what we do is the products in use is what produces the carbon that we do, which means 99% of what we do is how do we improve the products that we put out there, which produces lesser carbon. This comes from either environmental and sustainability goals that people are asking, or for that matter these days, financial regulatory pressures that we have in terms of people asking us to do better in terms of our sustainability goals, and which is one I'm very proud of. Cummins is on the forefront of many of these, and we did a lot of these things long before it was a fad. We went to India in 1962, long before it was a fad. We started our sustainability report long before it was a fad 20, 50, 20 years ago or so. And these are things that we do because it makes right sense that we and the community are symbiotic in some ways that we have to do these things, right? But the bigger picture is, at least as it relates to commercial and transportation in terms of commercial mobility, most of these people that use this use it for a living. Unlike you and I using cars, we could afford not to have a car tomorrow and we could ask our spouse or somebody else to drop us at work. Whereas for these people, what they do matters in a serious way. So what they look for in some ways is, will my total cost of ownership be right? Will I be able to, will it economically make some sense? And at the same time, do I have the necessary infrastructure that is there for me to use this because the gasoline and the diesel infrastructure that has been put in place over the last 100 years has been huge. Now, to disrupt that and being able to put back electric networks or others that you need to have, the first thing that they ask us is, do you have the infrastructure that is there? Can I do my job that I need to do? And will it make money for me? These are the three big drivers I get to hear every day when I go to customers. And that's what forces them to make decisions on one technology over the other. And the other thing they would ask us is, don't push me into one set of technologies. Allow me, give me the palette of technologies that is available so that I can choose what is best for me for the application or for the use that I need to have. And I'm interested, you know, picking up on that, um, particularly the example of different users having different needs and different priorities. Cummins is a, a global company. So how does this look across different continents? Because as you said, you know, for us in the industrialised West, there is a particular set of concerns here, a particular set of systems that are already in place. When you're looking at the global business Cummins has, do you need a different strategy on different continents or in different regions? And how do, how do they differ? Well, in, in lots of ways, in the, on two axes, I would say. On one axis is what is the horsepower, if you will, that you need to do the work that you need to and for those of you that have been in some parts of the world, you'll see these buses and trucks that are driving at 10 miles an hour, it feels like, on first gear because of how the infrastructure on the road is there, right? In which case, they're what you would consider as a 200 horsepower motor that you would probably call it as medium duty in North America would be heavy duty in India, for that matter, or in Africa, for that matter. The other thing, for example, most of our combines and agricultural equipment works for about 300 hours in any given year. In places where there is these land masses are not available for you to do agriculture, most of these equipments are very, very small, if you think of it. So one is hours that you use from 300 hours to 6,000 hours that you would do. 
On the other side is in terms of horsepower as to what is the power that I require for the work that I need to do. So you can't just in one big blob say it's transportation mobility, you divide this up into hundreds of applications and each of these applications by region, by the geography that you're operating in, by the customers that they use, tend to become very different, which is why I call commercial mobility and transportation is a marsh shot as opposed to passenger car is a moonshot, I would say, because you can actually get it done because the use is similar and the way people use it is pretty much around the world very, very similar. Just before we get to the technologies, then, let's come to the goals because, you know, Cummins has set out these this roadmap. But to tell us what it is, like, you know, there's all these companies at the moment and everyone's got their policy and their strategy and their wherever. Um, there's all these buzzwords that kind of go round and round and I'm never sure how much some of them mean. But what, what for Cummins specifically, what are the goals in terms of net zero and sustainability? Yeah, we've said that publicly, we've said by 2050, we would be net zero. What that means for us in terms of net zero is net zero in the operations that we participate in, which is factories, distribution centers, and others. In terms of life cycle, what do we do in terms of the products that we use in these places? As well as in the communities that it impact in, we would make sure that it is net zero. The other large part that we have said is that the products that we use that go into use with our customers would be net zero by 2050. I think of this in three segments or three chunks of 10 years, Helen. The first 10 would be where everybody is trying out a variety of technologies, which is what people are gonna say, I'm gonna try one of these, one of that, and I'll see what works, which is what we are in, which is predominantly at this time, I would call it as a prototype mode. Most of it is still diesel and natural gas, but any of these other technologies are just, you're trying as alpha phase or beta phase that you would do. At this time, people are also starting to think about what infrastructure can be there to be this green infrastructure that we could have because well to wheels is hugely important for us, meaning from well to tank and then tank to wheel, right? Tank to wheel is what everybody talks about, but if you cannot green the grid, then what you get in terms of you might be driving an electric car in Indiana where I am from, but most of the source of that power that comes from is coal, which doesn't necessarily help from a well to wheel perspective. So infrastructure will start to go on green. The second phase, which I call as the messy middle, which would be the 30s to 40s, would be where certain technologies will bubble up, which will then allow you to say, this is better from a total cost of ownership, from a customer use, or from where people need to be doing these things. And then at the same time, in my opinion, infrastructure will start getting better in this time. The last decade in 2040 is where I think reliability of the grid will be better in terms of the green grid. And even if it is not exactly 2050, this three-phase philosophy of prototype, trying as many solutions, messy metal, and robust solutions that come up in the last decades is how I think this will start to pan out. And again, this is different for different parts of the world. Like you said, in some parts of the world, it may not be possible by 2050 that they could do well to wheel. They might do tank to wheel first before they could go well to tank. And how does this, I mean, so one thing that's very, you know, it's starting to be talked about more, it was one kind of achievement, I guess, in the public discussion to get to net zero by some date. But obviously, you know, the environmental science, the earth science is very clear that there is a big difference between doing 95% of the work in the first five years and then kind of tidying up the rest until 2050 and then just kind of leaving everything as it is until, you know, five years before the deadline and then trying to do it all right at the last minute. And, and it's clear that the more we do earlier, the better it's going to be. So so how is that built into Cummins' 
goals because you know it's one thing to say we can kind of follow the market and do what everyone else does and it's all going to get better but there is a big difference between dropping things very quickly at the start and kind of saving up the big gains until the end. Yeah, which is what we call as destination zero, right? And then this idea of that we have two kinds of businesses that we have. One is this existing business that you talk about, which is the ICE business, internal combustion engines. And the other one that we have within our company, which is this new power business that we have. The idea is that you need to advance new power solutions as though there is it is going to happen today in those applications that you can actually get zero emissions vehicle today. While at the same time, if you can improve the efficiency of existing applications and going and putting requirements, like we've said, that from 2018 timeframe, by 2030, we will reduce it by 25%, which means that for every vehicle that is out there, we can actually reduce the emissions that is being produced, right? One good example that I would argue is, for example, if you put in drop-in fuels in our engines that are there today, like renewable natural gas is a good example that you would have, it's negative carbon. Not only do you do that, but you do it not for existing engines, but for all the engines out there that is already there, you would be able to put that in, which means that you're starting to reduce the carbon footprint that you put out. This is why I think our approach of doing both is actually better than waiting for this perfect solution that you're saying either at 2045 or 2040, and then say everything will go till that time, don't do any improvement on the existing things. Which requires though, that we have to invest quite a bit on both kinds of technologies which is why companies like us can afford to do, because we have the scale, not everybody could afford to do it. Some people can do the one side of it, which is the new power that I'm going to go battery electric like Tesla is doing, or some others can just say, I'm going to abandon this, I'm just going to do one of this kind and leave it there. We have the scale, we have the geography reach, and we are able to actually do this, which I think is far better approach than one or the other. So you're just, I mean, because a lot of sort of environmental discussion at the moment is very hard on any investment in, in diesel engines, for example. So am I, am I right in thinking here that your justification is that the infrastructure doesn't exist for something else for now, so you make the diesel engines better while you can, expecting that to be overtaken? Yeah, I, I think it is exactly that. But then even more so that every improvement that you make today is actually going to help in the long run as technologies get firmed up. It's not only in diesel, right? Natural gas is a lower carbon fuel. If you can use bio-renewable fuels that you could put in diesel, which allows you today, let's say 20% of what you do is biofuels, and if you are capable of using 100% of our engines to be 100% capable of renewable fuel, which we don't sometimes today, not all manufacturers do, then you allow, it allows that. Synthetic fuel is the other one that you would do. Natural gas is one. Propane is the other as well as hydrogen. If you can develop a hydrogen economy as one example, till such time fuel cells are ready, which is going to be quite a while away, particularly in the commercial transportation space, if you can use hydrogen in, as a fuel in the existing engine that you have, then you can actually gain a lot of benefit over the next decade or so till such time fuel cells are ready. That's our approach to say, start today, don't wait. It's not a light switch event. It's going to take some time. Can you do something in the meantime while you're getting ready for that? Hybrids is another case where batteries, eventually it'll go to batteries, but if you could put with the existing diesel motor an electric motor and 20% of that power can come from the electricity, electric motor that you have, that's 20% less use of existing diesel fuel that you would use in there, which overall helps with less carbon that's going into the atmosphere. And what do you see in the wide, you know, with your competitors, effectively, the wider world, because it's fine, you know, Cummins is a big company, but still, it's not the only company. And and I'm interested in your perspective on 
on the general movement? Because it has been traditionally the case, especially in things like engines, the sort of more traditional forms of engineering, perhaps, that they have been a little bit slower to accept that, you know, if you if you run a startup and you've invented it, you invented a widget five years ago, then you're quite happy to invent another widget in five years time, right? But these traditional industries, do you see urgency here? I, I would say in the last five years, the world has changed quite a bit, Helen. I, I don't know if I'd sat in front of you in 2016, I would have been able to have this much conviction about what I'm talking about. At that time, I would have been a little bit tepid about what things are, where things are going. The thing that I'm seeing is there is still a group of people, whether call it one of the ends of the spectrum, where they think that there is only this is the only solution that is available, and these are the ones that are going and talking about what they have. I think in general, a little bit, but most of our competitors and customers, whether it's Daimler, whether it is uh, in China or in India and other places that we have, our partners and customers that we have, I think Senior Council has prevailed and people in general agree that we need to move towards battery electric, we need to move towards a hydrogen economy, and there is a bridge period by which that we need to make improvement today and we cannot put our head in the sand and just assume things are going to be the same when we wake up 25 years from now or so. And that I'm seeing more and more. I speak to most CTOs and CEOs of these companies, and in general, people feel like we as a transportation and mobility industry can actually come up with the technology solutions that need to be there, but if infrastructure is not there and government incentives are not there, these three things need to coexist together. Technologies can come together, but most times why technologies don't get adopted is because infrastructure may not be there at the same pace as which technology gets to be ready. And then how about measurement? I mean, it's one thing, and we're seeing this a lot at the moment in the environmental space, that companies make a lot of claims of various types because, you know, firstly, because they want to look good, but it's kind of easy to make a claim. It's a lot harder to prove that you've actually done the thing, you know, especially in this kind of world where you're you're kind of measuring a, it's not easy to show you didn't do something. So what kind of metrics, like have you got a system of accountability basically where you can be held to a standard by your shareholders or the public or your customers? Yeah, we were one of the first companies to do what we call a science-based targets, right? These are national labs and others, Department of Energy and others that are approved mechanisms by which they say, this is how we measure your CO2 footprint, whether it is in your factories or in your communities or in your products that you use. And then what is your baseline and where are you going from there? But there is lots of this that everybody wants to claim that I've improved by 20% or I've improved by 30%. The one thing that is happening in the United States particularly is this SEC rules that are likely to come up which might actually force us to do some of this, which is what I think around the world over time might come about that might make it. The other thing, which I don't think is very popular, but eventually if there is some sort of a carbon credit system that will be there, then I think this measurement system is going to get really, really good because of the fact that you're going to get credit for something that you're doing and people are going to get real antsy if they're going to get money out of the whole transactions, if you will, that I think that will also force this accounting to be okay. I think the next big discussion about all of this, you know, in five years time, we're going to be sitting here discussing monitoring and verification. So you've mentioned um, a couple of times different technologies. You know, how much is this a technology problem and how much is it a, a thinking problem? Like it's our, an attitude and approach problem. And how much is it just we haven't invented the widget yet? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I am just old fashioned. I think physics only goes at the certain level that it can go, right? Is that you can't sometimes 
force these solutions as though it is ready, and you will pay for it in one form or the other, particularly in the kind of the world that we are in, in commercial transportation. You can't just go and put a product out there that would not necessarily work, or it works for a little bit, and then it goes away, right? Physics will take its own course, and I think most solutions that are there, we kind of know. None of the things that I am seeing today are new technologies that has not been there. Fuel cells has been there for a while. For spacecraft, we've used fuel cells. Uh, electric stuff is not new. It's 150 years old, right? And we've used that. Some of the things that we're talking about in terms of renewable fuels and others, I think it has been there. The biggest thing, Helen, I would argue is the political will and the collective will of nations and individuals together is what was lacking even 10, 15 years ago. And somebody asked me last week, what are you optimistic about? And I think I take cue from social revolutions or social things that have happened in the last 30 years or so. If those things can happen, in my opinion, this thing will happen. I don't think this train has left the station. I'm not worried about it. It will get to its destination, which is destination zero. The question is, how will the path be, is what I don't exactly know. But in 10 years' time, I think it'll get much more crystal clear, I would say. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. And so what do you see at the moment? So let's pick two of the, the powertrain options that are non... Well, we can argue about the first one. Uh in theory, could be non-fossil fuel based. And those are hyd hydrogen and electric. Now, hydrogen is controversial because it's not efficient as a fuel, you know, that you can, if you use electricity to make it, you get a lot less back than you put in, but it's portable, you know, it has some of the advantages of a fossil fuel and it can use that infrastructure. So, so those two things specifically, hydrogen and electric, have you got any feel for which one of them might be more important in some situation? Like, how do you plan, basically, how do you plan as a business for covering all your bases here? 
Yeah, let me take electric for example, right? Electric, the biggest issue that we have today is one is cost, obviously the cost of battery, which is coming down significantly. The second is energy density, right? Which means what is the size and weight of this battery that is needed to be there? Particularly in your best car, it doesn't matter. You could put a 300 kilowatt battery in there and you're using it for three passenger or five passenger at best and you will have enough space where you could put the battery. If you got to put the same thing on a truck, you might take one third of the truck or the lorry that you're going to be using where it needs to transport goods, which makes it difficult, which is what we call as energy density. The second thing is today, most of us fill our petrol or gasoline tanks in less than five minutes. For the same thing, the energy density, it's 100 times more it takes for it to get charged, which means that for a equivalent energy that you can get out of diesel or gasoline fuel, it would take eight hours, if you will, for the five minutes that you do, which is what needs to happen through superchargers and infrastructures where you can actually get it done either in the night when you go back to a depot like a school bus or a transit bus that you would have, or for that matter, refuse trucks that you go and pick up garbage, you come back and then you can charge it and then you can start back again the next time. Those are kinds of applications or yard spotters in places where it is or in, in a port if you want to go pick up stuff and then put these cargo stuff back where other trucks come and pick it up. There are those kinds of applications where you can actually charge it and your range is much less, then those are the places where electric will eventually pick up, I would argue. Now, where hydrogen, like you said, the issue has been if it gets renewable, meaning from wind and solar is what you put, or from hydroelectric or others that you provide this electricity. Because I think we should, we should just clarify here that I think 95% of current hydrogen supplies are actually leftovers from the fossil fuel industry. So this is where the debate comes from, that at the moment, hydrogen is not particularly green, but you can make it from sustainable sources. Exactly. If you do it from sustainable sources, then green hydrogen is the best thing that you could do because of the portability that you talked about, whether it is in some parts of the world, they think it needs to be liquid. In other parts of the world, we think it is gas. That has not been necessarily determined. Europe likes it because they would like to get ammonia from other places, which allows you then it to be liquid. Whereas in US, there is already places where we have this infrastructure in petrochemicals and others that if you could sequester the carbon, which then becomes gray hydrogen, which then could eventually get to become this green hydrogen that you have, then you could use the pipelines that you're talking about that currently uses, which then allows for hydrogen as a good transportation mechanism. The thing why hydrogen is good, Helen, in my opinion, is hydrogen is used in steel. Hydrogen is used in cement production. Hydrogen is used in petrochemical production, which means they have today the infrastructure that is required by many of these companies that are there, Shell, Aramco, Saudi Aramco, and all these guys use hydrogen today. And for them, it actually makes it easier as well that they could do. The other is materials that are used for the creation of batteries, right? Lithium, cobalt, nickel, all these things are sometimes not easy to find. And the amount of energy that you need to put in the creation of battery also makes it hard sometimes for you to actually uh, look at the well-to-wheel use of it, right? Which, uh, which is the other bit that you can think. So back to transportation and mobility, back to what I'm good at and what I know about, I think it will be based on application. For short haul in city applications with a return to depot, battery electric will be the ones that would go. For long haul, long distance commuting, if hydrogen can become the source of fuel, it would be much easier because of the fact of transportation and how long it can actually go. 
and it'll allow you to use the space and cargo that is required for movement of goods as well. And so for, for coming specifically then, what, what are the technological, the engineering really advancements that are, are your focus now? I mean, you know, we've talked about this, we're looking ahead to 2030, but presumably anything you engineer now is only going to be ready in, by 2030. So what are the things that are really like where you're, you're focusing effort now? I'll break it down into three or four things, right? In electric stuff, it is more about the fact what is battery cell chemistry, electrochemistry of batteries, how do we put these things together, battery cells into battery packs, and what is the electronics behind it in terms of working through all this, how does this work? So the software side of it, how does this battery charge and decharge, those kinds of things is what the technology that needs to be proven out and that needs to become really stable. On the fuel cell and the hydrogen side of it, it is the production of hydrogen in some ways, which is the electrolysis that we are participating in. It is as well the fuel cell technology itself as to how do these membranes work, how does it not leak, how is it reliable, and what do we need to do? And then the size needs to come down so that we can actually put this under the hood of a truck, if you will. On the internal combustion engine side, it is more of the same, if you will, on efficiency of diesel engines. How do we use our diesel engines to use different fuels like hydrogen, like natural gas, and others? And then the other piece of work that we are trying to work on is these low carbon fuels. Is there a real thing on low carbon fuels? Because if you have to green aviation, it's going to be synthetic fuel that you got to do. Kerosene will not do it today. And if you need to move from kerosene to the zero fuel, zero carbon fuel, then most of the synthetic fuel is going to go over there. In which case, can we have renewable fuels like natural gas and others that we could do, which means that our infrastructure around that needs to change also in terms of how do you carry it, how do you transport it, how do you provide the delivery of this into the engine and what do you need to do. So fascinating work, which is why I think that even though a lot of people think that it's not a fascinating industry, what we are doing is just cutting edge in my opinion. It's not just always in Silicon Valley that you do cutting edge work. We do it in Midwest of Indiana as well. Well, I think actually, I mean, one of the interesting things about this, the, this whole transition is that the things that matter most are not the sexy things in the traditional way of thinking about it. And almost that's the biggest problem. Like, sure, you know, someone wants to build a space rocket. It's very cool. Hooray. But actually, that is not, we don't need space rockets. We need very mundane technologies that work very well. And they're much less, you know, you don't get, you don't get them featured on the front of technology magazines in quite the same way. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever feel kind of, un, you know, sort of unappreciated in that way? Yeah, it is. But then I've grown in this company, which has been called as a quiet company, right? I've not talked to one like you in 30 years that I've been in, right? And sometimes we just don't, we just do our job and hoping that we, uh, somebody will notice it and somebody will recognize it and that's good enough for us. And I often, when I came in here, that said, hey, if you don't want your mom to know about what's going to be on the papers on Monday, don't do it. That's kind of how I grew up in. And so it just seems like I'm old fashioned in some ways, yeah. Uh, my mum's on Twitter. She knows everything. Um, I wanted to ask you about laying the groundwork because along with technology that perhaps isn't terribly sexy to some people, there's a lot of, you know, if you want to scale things up, if you want to change a whole system, there's a lot of things you need to start doing 10 or 15 years before you're really going to use them. And so there's a lot of forward thinking here. And also it's a bit of a bet because you perhaps don't know exactly what is going to be needed. So I was just wondering, what's, what do you see in that space? You know, what needs to be done now to make sure things can happen in 2030? And how do you future-proof the effort that you put into it? Yeah, I, I tell you, the G20 is actually meeting in Bali right now, I think, uh, the top 20 nations. 
And somebody said this, which I think would be nice, if that 10 of those 20, if they can get their act together, and you know all these players that are there, that is probably the biggest thing that we could do. Yeah, I can recycle. Yeah, I can do s simple things that I should do, I should be doing. But the bigger thing that can have the system of system things that you're talking about is if those 10 countries can come together and make some meaningful things that we could do, that would work. The second is, I would argue that uh, walking the halls of Washington, D.C., Belgium, and some of these important players is important because they have the pen to go and do important things, just like they did the Inflation Reduction Act recently, the things on the CHIPS Act they did. These are kinds of things that they can, in one swoop, make huge investments for the future in terms of greening stuff, either on the infrastructure side or on the technology side. The third thing that I would say is that as industries come together, I think we need to think about our industry, put meaningful solutions and put realistic goals and make that happen. If each of us can do, meaning that the fertilizer industry can do that, the steel production industry can do that, electricity generation can do, then collectively governments and regulatory frameworks can come together to go make this happen. The last one, which is important, I think regulation plays actually an important piece that is long, that is set set in goals and say that there is improvement that is going to happen year on year over the next 15 years, that will set the industry up well for them to go do as well. The last one I would say is in some ways there is this VC and the other infrastructure that is there where money can go where it needs to go. I think there are a lot of people that are doing those kinds of things in terms of putting venture capital fund in some of these early stage technologies that are there. And collectively, I think those four things could actually make a meaningful impact, I would say, Helen. And so what's it to sort of pick up on the first one there, what do you think the, is the balance between the need for some kind of standardization? Because in the long term, it's more efficient if everyone is using the same kind of pipes or the same kind of, all of us have got computer connectors of 37 different types hanging around from the last 15 years, right? But in order to have some kind of standardization, everyone has to agree on a technology quite early. And so there's this thing where everyone's like, they're trying things out. We want all these different things. We all want to have our own solution. But at some point, what the world wants is just one kind of plug or one kind of pipe. How do we balance that? How do, how do you see the risks of when do we have to choose? OK, we've had our experimentation. Now we have to pick. We're just going to commit to this one because in the long term, that will be more efficient, even if in the short term, it's less efficient. Yeah, and I think one example, if there is one that is in front of our eyes, is the passenger car, right? I think a lot of experimentation was going on for quite a while in terms of plug-in hybrid, series hybrid, in terms of uh, fuel cells like the Toyota Mirai, Hyundai, and others have done, GM has done. And I think it is going almost close to enough. We're now going to be battery electric for passenger cars. I think that's why I call that a moonshot, that it is more or less coming there. In the next three, four years, I think that will be decided. Whether you're going to be in India, whether you're going to be in China, it is going to be more or less electric. I think on the commercial side of it, or for that matter, on steamships as to where or uh, ships that are going, where it needs to be, or aviation, we still are not there at that stage where a passenger car is. In the next five to 10 years, probably, I think that sector will be there. The same thing will happen in steel, the same thing will happen in fertilizer. Each of them, this is why I think physics can only take a certain role. It can't, you can't just fast forward or just hit the fast forward button and hopefully you'll get to the end and hopefully we'll get there in the next five years or so. 
just finally a question for you about sort of the, the future and how optimistic you are. Because one of the things I think we do is we talk about moving away from things. We don't necessarily talk about what we're moving towards. So I was just wondering if you were to look ahead 10 years, for example, you to imagine the world in 10 years time, you know, assuming we do well at all of this. What what are the most exciting things? Sort of visualise that world for us. What are the things in it that we you think we want we should want to see in 10 years time that we should get excited about now? I think school buses are going to be quieter. School buses are going to be electric. And when your kids go in there, you're going to start feeling like the fact that there is not going to be in some sort of emissions that they need to have into it as a, in some ways. Transit buses, when you're uh, driving around a city, that's going to be there. When you are in city center, it's going to be quieter and it's going to be cleaner. And you're going to be in ports where there is going to be old trucks that are there for 20 years or so. There is going to be newer trucks that are going to be there. In parts of the world, like in China and in India, there is a vast amount of trucks that will be kind of phased out, and new trucks that are going to be efficient, and new trucks that are going to be with uh, electric or hydrogen is going to happen. These all give me hope that not only will development continue to happen, but at the same time, I think we are going to be in a cleaner, better place for our grandkids. I sure hope that my grandkid would come up and say that, what did you do in the 20s? I actually made a difference, and that difference is that I made this place greener, I made this place sustainable, and I hope, hopefully, I left a better place than I found it. Well, that is a great place to finish. Uh, thank you so much, Shukath. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and to explore all these issues. Um, thank you to the audience. Thank you to Intelligence Squared and Cummings. And the next event, the third one and final one in this series, we'll see is exploring the role of corporations in the energy transition. And you can find out more about that if you go to intelligencesquared.com. Uh, you can sign up to the newsletter where you find out about all these upcoming events and you can register for that event there. And for more information about Cummings, please visit Cummings.com. And that is it. So I hope we've given you some food for thought for the rest of your day. So thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.